John chapter 8. John chapter 8. Last week I told you I just was not going to try to finish it. And I know that surprised many of you. Uh, that uh, in this passage there's a couple of things that just, I think, require some attention. And we went through it last week and we discussed it under this topic. Here you will, of conversations with Jesus. The conversations of Jesus, but the specific topic was the twin challenges. The twin challenges. I think... And I said, if you're here last week, and we'll re- you know you can listen to this on recording if you choose, that there are two challenges in the book in this chapter, chapter eight, that I personally believe, uh, after some years of being in ministry, that every follower of Jesus is going to struggle with one or the other, and, and perhaps both, uh, it, it, you know, at different times in their life, that there really are two huge challenges here. And as I worked through this some time ago, and I thought, you know, we just got to talk about this because we don't talk much about it. And I'll just give it to you again, and then, and then we'll come back. But there are these, these two challenges. One is the challenge of dealing with legalism. The challenge of dealing, and that's still on your hand out there, I think, uh, on that twins challenge. And, and we said that the challenge of legalism, that we have to understand that grace is for pardon. That gr- understand the grace of God, that grace is pardon. That Jesus is very clear to this woman caught in adultery that he does not condemn her. He forgives her. He, he is willing to pardon her. And uh, that, that's incredible. And most people, uh, even if they're not followers of Jesus, often can remember this verse, go, I, you know, I don't condemn you either. But there's another challenge, and, it, and it's the second side of this. And, and I just, I just want to say to you, I, I think that it is somewhat at times largely un, unaddressed and not touched because it's difficult. Uh, you know, I, I'm kind of like everybody else. When things get difficult, I like to go to something else. This other one is a bit more difficult and a bit more thorny to work through because you'll notice there when Jesus in John chapter 8, after we looked through the, the Pharisees and their legalism and the, the way they responded, Jesus said to her, I do not condemn you either, go. But then he says this, but go and sin no more. And in that event, and and Generally, what we discover, I would say this to you, this is how we understand the Bible. The, the epistles, you know, you know what the epistles are, right, in the Bible? You know, wives of the apostles, right? So, uh, <clears throat> I got new people in here. I got I to gotta use my old stuff. <laughs> I'm in town. No. <laughs> I got new people. They got, uh, the epistles are the letters written to the churches that Paul and Peter and John and James are attempting and and uh, uh, are attempting to try to help people understand how do we take the teachings of Jesus and live them out? We got the Gospels first, we understand that, but but now the epistles are really trying to deal with specific issues, specific things that are going on in churches, and to try to say, okay, how does understanding the story of Jesus translate into that? So there, there so there's a there's a there's a theme that is running throughout the gospel, I believe, as well as the epistles, and it's this, and I'm just going to lay it out here, it's the challenge of antinomianism. I know, big word. (laughs) Got your money's worth today. Uh, It's the challenge of antinomianism, and if you will, uh, I think I put on there, antinomianism is addressed by grace as power. I hope I'll, I'll be able to explain that, that antinomianism is addressed as grace, as power. Now, I think I put this on your uh, deal there. 
Did I? What antinomianism is one, or an antinomian, would be one who holds that under the gospel dispensation of grace, see, that, there it is, the moral law, the Ten Commandments, is no, of no use or obligation because faith alone is necessary for salvation. That's true. Faith alone is necessary for salvation. But the question is, what is then one's life after that, after faith? And, and you know, I, I know I'm probably, again, this can, this can rattle some legalistic bones in you if you got them. This idea, I understand that. We're going to work carefully, I think, through this. Because I want to suggest to you that in my survey and research like this, that uh, the, the evangelical church in many ways has correctly understood that grace is for pardon. Understand that. We're down with that. What I am not convinced as much is that we understand grace as power. That grace understood in the New Testament is not simply God's disposition or His desire to forgive you. It is His power released in our life. We're going to look at that. And so I want to, want to suggest that, that. That there is the possibility that because of our un, lack of understanding, if you will, of grace as power, we have drifted into antinomianism. Where in some research that you read, that there is no distinguishable statistical difference in the way that people who claim to be Christians live and people who claim to not be Christians live. You seen that stuff? You seen some of that research? There's no statistical difference uh, at all. And, and, and there are some challenges we face. I, I think that I grew up in a church, I will just tell you this, where legalism was pretty, pretty strong. Now, I, I've got something for you to do today if you want to. You don't have to. We're just going to lock the doors, but, uh, you know, anyway. <clears throat> I'm just curious where you think you fall in this. Either legalism or antinomianism, where the tendency is to say uh, it, it matters little how I live or, you know, I'm under grace and God will, God will forgive me. Uh, I tell my students, that's pretty, that's pretty academic and abstract until somebody does that to you. <laughs> you know? Anyway, I'm just curious. It, on your, on your uh, deal there, there's a thing called Socrative.com. If you have a smartphone... Or, uh, uh, or a tablet or anything like that. You can go to Socrative.com. S-O-C, it's on your hand out there. And I want you to understand something. I have disabled the names. I'll show you this. I don't, know, I don't want to know who you are. I mean, some of you I do, but some of you I really don't. No. Yeah, yeah, you see that? Yeah, you can see that. I've disabled it. And, and here, here's the little quiz. I'm going to start it right here. And you can go in. There are just two questions. Uh, that you can answer, and I'm just using this for some research that I'm doing, not only for this Sunday school class, uh, but also for some of my work and research at the university. I'm just curious, uh, as the people, see here's anonymous, 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 so I'm, I'm not going to use this or sell this to AOL or anything you know, that I know of. Um, uh, but, but I'm curious because I have some thoughts and, about how this thing plays out, about how this uh, thing uh, about antinomianism or legalism plays out. And again, in this story, I'm just going to suggest to you that, that Jesus, I think, is addressing both of them. Which, I, again, in my life, in ministry, and teaching theology for some 20-something years, I find that people find themselves generally in one or these other, one or the other. They're either bound up by legalism, where they're living their life thinking that they've got to be good enough and try enough and do all that kind of stuff, or they're bound up in antinomianism where they tend to think, you know, it's okay, how, it doesn't really matter to me. I'm not, I'm not saying people often think that completely through. That's just how they live. They, they just think, well, grace covers it. And I understand that. But we're going to try to hit that balance here. Now, while you're taking that, I just want to try to play this, uh, state, this notion here that I think that grace, here's what I want to say now, 
grace addresses both of these. The answer to legalism isn't try harder. The answer to legalism isn't work at it. The answer to legalism is to experience God's grace as pardon. To understand that for Christ's sake, He forgives you. For Christ's sake, for His grace, He forgives you. But on the other side of it, this antinomianism, where there is this understanding that because of the grace of God, my life has been transformed and now there's a power available to me. I'll just tell you, I grew up in the church. My dad was a pastor and a good... Thanks for answering these. I'll close it down here in a bit. Uh, I never heard of grace as power. I was both a legalist in terms of trying to be good enough for God to love me. And I was a legalist in antinomianism because I had enough sense to know that if I believed Him, I would obey Him. So I found myself in a double trap that I was not only a legalist in trying to get God to love me, but in trying to obey Him, I became a legalist. In trying to obey Him, I I did it in my own strength. So what I'm going to suggest today, we're going to work through this. We need both of these. We need to understand grace as pardon. If you didn't, weren't here last week, you can listen to the recording. We record all these sessions. If, if you need to listen to the, the recording on grace as pardon, go listen to it. Today we're going to talk more about grace as power. Now, you know, when I was thinking about this and, and working through this, uh, I thought about uh, needing all, if you will, of the pieces here, both of them, grace as pardon and grace as power. I thought about the flu shot. Yeah, not really. I'm a little needle-phobic, and this week at the university, they had our health fair, which I called our health torture. And, uh, you know, I'm just scared of needles. I'm not scared of medicine. I'm just scared of needles. You know, if we could get it Star Trek and we go, eh, like that, I'd be fine. And uh, so I was thinking about this. I thought, you know, uh, uh, the, 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 the flu vaccine is, uh, in my judgment, a sort of a, an illustration here of this idea of having both grace as part of it. Now, I've asked Steve Calmer. He's going to come up here. Steve, Steve Calmer, I met Steve some time ago. You should have seen him at Halloween. He is a dead drop. Come on up here, up here, for Mr. Clean. Yeah. I know. Uh, anyway, I've had the privilege of getting to know Steve and Debbie and their kids and, and their family. Steve is a, 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 in the medical area, and he knows all about vaccines. So I'd ask him, if he would, to share just a couple of minutes about, now here's again what we're trying to talk about, that we need both grace as pardon and grace as power for it to take full effect. So, All right, well, with that said, and some of the reaction, anytime you say vaccine, you know, you're going to get some kind of reaction in the, in the group. Yeah, I realize that. Uh, but first of all, before I say anything, anything I am about to say, my beliefs, opinions are not necessarily those of Cliff Sanders or Crossings Community Church Board, elder staff, or anybody else that's associated. So, so let me get that. I have never been to Israel. And I think I know what dialectic is, though. I think I understand dialectic, though. No, but seriously. Um, so I guess the question is how a flu vaccine works. We have to have What's it? For the flu vaccine, we talked about this a bit, that for the flu vaccine to operate, it needs to have not just one strain, right? Yeah. So, so how a flu vaccine is typically made in general? Everything I'm about to say is in general. The CDC, along with the World Health Organization, each spring decide and try to predict which are going to be the strains that are going to come in and are going to affect 
during the winter time during flu season in the U.S. So typically they'll take three. Now they're taking four strains. So there's like two A, two B. They then give this information to the companies that manufacture the vaccine. And then they have a few months of which to get this right, get it together, make sure the vaccine has enough antigens in it and everything passes every quality measure. That's then given to send out to the doctors, health departments, hospitals. People receive the vaccine, and then you begin to build antibodies. Typically, you're not considered protected for about 21 days until you after you get the flu vaccine, so it doesn't happen immediately. And the media would love to take a look at how successful the flu vaccine is every year. And a lot of times, if you're 50, 60 percent effective, that's considered really good. So, it, so nowadays in the vaccine, if it has four strains that's covered in it, you'll have the two B strains that are known. But there are about 306 known total strains that are out there. So it's not possible to make a vaccine with that many strains in it for it to be fully protected. Now, you will have some protection. But, again, with everything that's out there and just the science of predicting, you know, what is going to be out there, it may getting the flu vaccine, it may lessen the symptoms that you get. And in addition, there's actually a new vaccine that's out there that's a high-dose vaccine. So, generally, as you get older, your body loses the ability to make as many antigens and protection or antibodies and, and uh, to be as protected. So, if you can you know, possibly double the dose, then that will give your body more fighting power to help protect against the viruses. So, what you're saying, what he's saying here is that it's not just one strain of the flu in the vaccine. Yeah, correct. Yeah. You go back 40, 50 years, it was actually just one strain. You know, right now, last year, it just began. They're actually increased from three to four, and that's considered a big deal. So, yeah, there are a lot of other, you know, strains out there that uh, that are just not in the vaccine to protect. Okay. Thank you, Steve. Uh, I told him whenever they get the flu vaccine to 99%, then I'll get a shot. Okay. I'll let you know. Thank you. But do not, again, this, is, this should not be your opinion. Here's what was fascinating to me is, Steve, I talked about it, that you need several strains in it for it to work. I want to suggest again that grace only understood as pardon isn't working. Grace only understood as pardon isn't working. It's not bringing to us all that God has for us in terms of our experience with grace. Just like a flu shot. I've often wondered too, <clears throat> Steve and I talked a little bit about this with my students. I've often wondered, just, it's just a, a thought here. If, if all I do is understand grace as pardon, and, I, and, I, and I, I liken that, if you will, maybe to just a low-dose flu shot. <clears throat> if I only understand grace as pardon, is it possible that as I experience that and accept that, that I somehow, by only having that one strain, become immune to the real thing. That's what the flu shot is trying to do. It's trying to get you to where your immunities are so built up that when the flu comes to town, you're immune. So I wonder sometimes if, one, if our lack of understanding this as grace, as pardon, and power has caused us to not experience all what God wants, or has it created in us an immunity to the real thing, to the power of the gospel? to an understanding that the gospel is more than pardon. It's power. Thank you, Steve. So I, I, that's kind of the, the line I want to run at. I want to I start moving in this direction. Notice what, let's, let's go here on this. Uh, you've already done that, and thank you. Uh, I, I want to say here on this uh, matter here, when we talk about grace, and I think this is on your outline somewhere. I've got, I told Becky I've got more notes I know what to do with here. Let's first off establish that grace is not a commodity. 
It's not something that God gives you. Grace is not a commodity. It's not, not, it's not something... God, grace is God's extension of Himself to give Himself and His life to you. Think about that for a minute. Grace is not a commodity. It's not something, not, not something we have to dole out. Grace is really God extending Himself to us, giving us His life, giving us His power, giving his, us His ability through His life to live. Because as I look at this passage, I see what Jesus said. He says, go and sin no more. I wrote in my notes, I said, is he kidding here? Is, is, this just, is he just kidding? Now, now let me give you a little insight into the passage here. Let, let's look here. Uh, the, in the original language, it means, uh, there's an adverb meaning no longer, no longer, from this point on, no longer, sin. And it's in the imperative voice here. Where Jesus is saying, do not sin. Don't, don't sin. You think, wow. Is, is that possible? Is that even likely? Is Jesus uh, just a, a, a trying to kid her, or is this just some of this other preacher kind of talk? I want to suggest to you something I believe, and I think the Scriptures, I hope as I get through this, will help you. I have no confidence in human nature. Okay? I know some humans. <laughs> Anybody else know some humans? <laughs> I don't have any confidence in you. This is not self-help, what I'm about to say. It's not, I don't have any confidence in, in human nature. I believe human beings are fallen and they are totally depraved. Totally. However, I want to say this. I think sometimes we overreach on that. I want to suggest to you the idea of a person being totally depraved doesn't mean they won't pay their library fines and they're going to eat their own children. Right? doesn't mean that. People that aren't followers of Jesus are capable of love for their children, apparently. They seem to be able to, if you will, uh, do some good things in society. I'm thankful for that. I, I'm not, I don't want to just work with followers of Jesus. I want to work with anybody that wants to do good. You with me on that? I, I, don't, I think this idea of totally depraved has gone way too far. What this means, I believe, from a theological standpoint is this, that human beings are completely powerless to change their status with God. Period. I don't think it means that we're all demons. I don't think it means that we can't do good. I don't think it means that we can't take care of people. I don't think it means that we eat all of our young. It means that we cannot change our status with God no matter what we do. So this is not some attempt to say, well, I just have great confidence that, you know, through willpower and like that. No. In fact, I, I, I wrote a, 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 some lessons this past uh, year and, and here's what we've called it and, and I want to get this, this in your mind. I don't have any confidence in human nature but I have an optimism of grace. I, I have an optimism of God's grace. Not only as pardon but also power. I have an optimism, and I'm not the only person. I have an optimism that God's grace is more than equal to the task of what we face. I don't have an optimism in human nature. I don't have an optimism in discipline. I don't have an optimism in trying harder. I don't have an optimism in human will, just the will to power, like Nietzsche said. I have an optimism in grace. I, I believe 1 John 4 4 that greater than he that is in you than he that is in the world. Do you believe that? I believe that. Greater is He that is in you 
than he that is in the world. I, I, I have an optimism about God's grace. That God's grace as pardon, that God's grace as power gives us the ability to live our lives in a way that is understandable. Now, I've got a second area here. I may have to deal with this in the future. I don't know. But I will say some of this also has to do, and I'm just going to lay this out and then leave. Okay. <laughs> I'm not letting any of you tie me up on this one. <clears throat> it could be that your lack of optimism of God's grace is because of your pessimism of human nature. And what I would say is a, is a too uh, broad understanding of the nature of sin. Some have said that all, well, Paul said, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Therefore, all falling short of the glory of God is sin. I'm not convinced of that. I'm convinced that all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. But I'm not sure falling short of the glory is also equal to sin. And I, 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 you know, I'm going to let you tie me up here. We'll come back to this someday before Jesus gets back. <laughs> but, but it could be that your definition of sin is too broad. It's too broad. It, 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 it's just too far out there. So this could be some of that. So is God's grace an empowerment for us? Now, I think this is also on there. From, this is from the Westminster Catechism which if you know anything about, this is a, from Reformed Tradition 1646. When God converts a sinner and translates him into the state of grace, He frees him from his natural bondage under sin and by His grace alone enables him freely to will and to do that which is spiritually good. This is not effort. This is not grace as pardon. This is not grace as God's disposition. This is grace as power. See the word I highlight for it, enables this is the Westminster Catechism, that God enables us. If you want to look at this, they're referring to Romans 12, uh, 5, uh, 1 and 2. Therefore, having been justified by, by uh, faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we've also received this introduction into grace in which we stand. Notice there, it's Romans 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, having been made right with God by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And not only this, but we have this, we've been introduced to grace in which we stand. Here, here's what I think. <clears throat> you, you go look at this if you want to. As I read this over the years and thought about it, I think, and, and the word there, he said, we, we've, we've received this introduction to grace. And, and that Greek word really means this, a person who is brought into the presence of a king. Introduce, this word here, means to bring somebody into the presence of a king. Because I've reflected on this, I've thought that maybe my life, if all I understand grace as pardon, is maybe I've only just been introduced to grace. I've never really gone in to the king's chamber and experienced grace as power. Maybe all I've done is just been introduced. Maybe that's possible. So let me talk to you here today about grace as power. So we're going to work through a lot of scriptures. You can see them on your hand out there. This was, when I went to seminary graduate school, was the most fascinating discovery, one of the most that I ever made. When I began to read the New Testament, and began, we're going to read, begin to see that grace is not limited to the discussion about pardon or God forgiving you. It is often referred to as grace, as power. So let's look at this first one here of grace that gives power to live. Number one, grace is for strength. 
you got your Bibles, now we're going to do a lot of running through here real quick. Hebrews, go to your table of contents, find the book of Hebrews, or if you got it on your phone. Listen to this. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 9. Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings, for it's good for the heart to be strengthened. How? By grace. How is the heart strengthened? By grace. See, again, grace is not a commodity. It's not a thing. It's God's extending of Himself and His life to you and me. And instead of thinking that food or other things like that's what gives us strength, it's God's grace that gives us strength, that empowers us. The other verse there is 2 Timothy. Go back. Again, you'll just have to look these up later. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. Paul writing to his son in the faith when he says, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. What kind of grace, Paul? Is it just, now be sure when you sin, you confess. Or is it an understanding? Be strong in the grace of God where God extends Himself to you to empower you and I to live. I think that's that idea. Be strong in the grace of that is in Christ Jesus. This optimism, if you will, of grace. Then go to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6 real quick. That's why I put them on there. You can go look at them later and check the context and and, uh, see what you think about it. In Acts chapter 6 verse 8, And Stephen, full of grace and power, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. This word chi or and chi is a connector there to say he's full of grace and power that enables him to do these signs and what why because God's life has been extended to him and in him is this a new idea to you is it this was to me I'm telling you I never read the scriptures careful enough or looked at them carefully enough to say when grace is used sometimes it's about power and strength let's move on here we go grace to endure difficulty. Grace to endure difficulty. Perhaps the, the most famous passage of this is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And again, there are, all, there are some issues there you might want to, and I'll be glad to talk to you about them later, uh, about what Paul says here about his own life. But in uh, second, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians, what did I say? Yeah, I know, what did I say? Okay, it's, it's on... Okay, I'm on the wrong line here. Thank you. I'll talk among myself up here. We go. <laughs> 2 Corinthians chapter 12. I, Paul tells about his life and how that in order... Uh, he, he's, he's experiencing some struggles. He, he even says there, there was a, a thorn in the flesh, something uh, to torment me. But I, I want to tell you, just, I don't have time to do this, but I want you to look at verse 10 and consider and consider that what Paul is doing is saying, I will be content with weaknesses, insults, distresses, persecutions, difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, I'm strong. That Paul is defining what he means by that thorn in the flesh. What does it mean? Persecution, distress, difficulty, problem. I'm just going to lay that out there for you. You have to go look at it on your own. But notice what he says. He said, for three times I asked God to remove this from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. What's sufficient for you, Paul, with your persecution, with your difficulties, with this thorn in the flesh? And theologians have been arguing about it for two millennia. What's the answer? Grace. My grace is sufficient when you're persecuted. My grace is sufficient 
when you're in trouble. My grace is sufficient when you have insults. My grace is sufficient for you when you feel weak. My grace is sufficient when you are in distress. Because power is made perfect. I've said this a bunch of times and I probably said some more, but remember this. This is the the principle here is this. Is that it is your inadequacy that creates your capacity for God to work in your life. I've said that a bunch of times, but we need to keep hearing. It's your inadequacy that creates your capacity for God to work in your life. This is what Paul's telling us right here. For instance, if today, you know, uh, I got it this morning, and, you know, I had an extra hour to eat some candy corn. And uh, I'm telling you, I, I think my blood sugar is crystallizing now. I think it's just sugar running. You know, I, I got to teach Sunday school class, but uh, I'll go to lunch, and I'll take a nap this afternoon after the Cowboys get beat. And... Uh, you know, you wake up on a day like today, or maybe like you did, you just got up and had some breakfast and came to church, and right now you're thinking about a grocery list or, you know, whatever. You know, your capacity probably for God, not too high. Not too high. You don't have any need. But, it, but if you got this morning and you were rushed to the emergency room for exploratory surgery on your brain at St. Anthony's, think of the capacity that you would have for God's work in your life? What would you be saying? You'd be praying. You wouldn't be thinking about, I'd like to have another donut. <laughs> You'd be seeking God. You'd be open to Him. You'd be saying, God, speak to me. What, do you, what, what, what opened that capacity up? Your inadequacy. It's completely counter to the way Americans think things work. It's not through seven steps to spiritual maturity. It's not through 14 books that you read. It's through increased inadequacy that creates that capacity for God now to be active and alive and working. When we resist that, we want to do everything. You know, I'm making 401k payments, nothing wrong with that. I'm doing everything that I can to reduce my inadequacy. And God is saying, Cliff, if you get more inadequacy, you'll have more capacity for me. That's what Paul says. My grace is sufficient for you. When you have problems, when you have to, it's not try harder, it's not pray more, it is to open your life to the grace of God and say, extend yourself, again, not a command, extend yourself into my life and in my circumstances and help me to be open to you more than I've ever been in my life. Okay? That's it. I got to go. Third, because I got something else to talk about. There's not another point. Just relax. (laughs) Grace to serve beyond one's abilities. You know, uh, now, you can go look at these passages. They're found in 1 Corinthians, I've got them backwards, 1 Corinthians 12, 4, which is the passage that refers that Paul says, now there are many different gifts, but one spirit and many different... Uh, it, it, it's referring there to followers of Jesus who have spiritual gifts to serve. Where he says, to one is given the word of knowledge, to another one is given you know, teaching, the other one is given helps like that. Do, do you know what that word gifts comes from in the New Testament? It comes from the word charis, grace. Those gifts that Paul's talking about, we call them charismata. Hallelujah. (laughs) Some of us are from that tradition, you know. Charismata. Every follower of Jesus is charismatic. I know that just scared several of you to death. But every follower of Jesus is charismatic. Meaning that we have abilities and gifts that God has bestowed on us that we might serve others and we will be able to do it in a way that is beyond our abilities. 
Listen, if you went talk, I'm serious now. I'm not, I, I'm not that smart. I, you know, I'm loud. And uh, if you went to my high school and told my teachers that I'm a, a college teacher, they would drop dead. <laughs> I graduated 208 out of 288. Genius. I'll never forget the first time somebody said to me, I, you know, when you're a college kid, you come home, they give you a chance to show everything you know, and I did in four minutes, you know, and told them everything I knew. And somebody said to me this, they said, I think you have the gift of teaching. I said, you're out of your mind. I don't even like teachers. <laughs> okay? Don't. I don't like teachers. No, I, I, th- I said, that's not possible. It has been the shock of my life. That I'm a teacher. I'm not. I'm not feigning humility here. And some of you are saying, maybe you missed your gift. But I, you know, I, I'm telling you, your ability that God has given you to serve others isn't you. It's the grace of God, the charismata, that He gave to you to serve, to care, to minister to others. Now I want to look at this First Corinthians 15 because this is one that has always intrigued me. Paul, it, boy, yeah, we'll do this next week too. Paul is commenting on his life and ministry. And, you know, there were lots of times when people called him to task and, oh, you're not really an apostle. You didn't know Jesus when he was on earth. You met him after he was raised from the dead. But he says this. He said, uh, verse 9 of chapter 15, I'm the least of the apostles. I'm not fit to be an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Verse 15, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. Think, 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 how would life be different if we went through like that? Nothing to prove. Nothing to defend. I'm who I am by the grace of God. No more, no less. I am what I am. And the grace of God to me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God within me. How would your life and my life be? I mean, listen, I, I know, and if any of you have been in ministry like that, I know when I'm operating in cliff. I know it. You may not, but I do. I know when I'm operating in cliff, when Cliff's trying to do something, when he's trying to make a point. You know, I, I tell my students this, no kidding. Uh, often what I'll do when I'm teaching because I'm kind of excitable. Have you noticed that? <clears throat> Didn't know. But listen, I was like that before I was a Christian. I was an excitable sinner. I'm an excitable follower. It has nothing to do with spirituality. It's all personality, okay? So I couldn't change. But I told my students, <clears throat> I know this. There's a pressing in me that I can feel when I'm dependent on me. There's a pressing in me. There's a there's an anxiety. There's a, there's a forcefulness in me that I, starts amping up. And I've done this long enough that the Spirit of God just will check me and say, stop. Just stop right now. See, any <clears throat> service that I can give or any service that you can give, if I am what I am by the grace of God, then it's the grace of God working within me. If you're getting anything out of this, it's because the grace of God is working in me and in you. Where would your life be like if you and I went that way? We said, you know what? It wasn't me. I mean, I work hard. I go to class. I, I do my work I can. But I, I have, over the years, by God's grace, 
developed an inward rest in my work. Not all the time I struggle with it, but an inward rest to say, you know what, I don't have anything to prove. And if this thing falls apart tomorrow, it's your deal. It's not mine. I remember saying to God one time, struggling in the ministry as a pastor, I said, hey, look, I didn't, I didn't sign up for this. You called me to this. <laughs> right? I didn't ask for this. So, so, you know, if it falls apart, it's yours. I'm going to do all I can. I'm going to, you know, be faithful. But it wasn't me working. It was the grace of God. Let me give you another one. I've got to get you to church. Grace received in the midst of temptation. God's grace extending Himself in the midst. Now, this, I'm, going to, I'm going to read it to you. It's Hebrews chapter 4. We'll finish here. And we, we hardly ever finish. We just quit around here. If this, is your, if this is your first Sunday here, we don't finish. We just... In my head, I know it's terrible. In my head, I hear I can Tina Turner. We don't do anything nice in these heads. So, sorry. So, maybe, maybe you want to find another class. I just I can hear Ike and Tina talking to me. Uh, <clears throat> this is an interesting passage in Hebrews 4, and it says, Therefore, verse 14, we have a great high priest whose path through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. He knows. But one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. So, so the setup is, he's experienced everything you've experienced. Yet, he didn't sin. Now the word next is therefore, or uh, therefore, what should we do? Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so we may receive mercy and grace to help in the time of need. Well, let me tell you, I, I, I translated some years ago. I, it completely changed my understanding. This word, time of need, you know what it means? In the good time. Eukarein. It means that we should come and get grace and mercy in the good time. I've always interpreted this. This is the verse I claimed when I sinned. <laughs> Didn't you? Come to the throne of grace and mercy and get grace and mercy. Time of need. One translator said it this way. This eye of need means the time you need it before you sin. That's the good time. The good time. One translator said in the t- or in the time or in the or in the time giving us timely help. It's translated this way. It may mean that we come and receive grace and mercy to help for timely help before we sin. Because the whole point here is about temptation, to go to get over it. Jesus did it. Now He understands us, and He's able, if you will, to give us timely help in that. Does that make sense to you? I'm just, I'm just going to re- suggest it to you. This, again, is grace as power. So I'm going to go get some grace, and I'm going to get some mercy so I can have it in the timely time or the, time, the good time. This is timely help so I don't fail. Again, it's optimism of grace. There's an optimism here that says God's grace is available. It's ready. It's timely. It can get to you on time. It can get to me on time in a way that it's called the good time. 
for all of us. Now the last one, and we're gone. Good night. <clears throat> oh, you know what? It's only 10. No. <clears throat> I'm sorry. Grace to be a channel of God's grace. <clears throat> I'll show you something real quick, inductively. You're in Hebrews. Turn to the right. Go two books to James. Or, or, up to 1 Peter. In 1 Peter... It says this, as each, 1 Peter 4.10, As each of you have received a special gift, charismata, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Underline that word manifold. Uh, good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Manifold here in Greek means many different colors. Many different variations, many different colors. And I've wondered, because if you look at this inductively, that word varied shows up in the first chapter. It shows up over here at chapter uh, 4, I'm sorry, chapter 1, when it says, we greatly rejoice in chapter 1 of 1 Peter 1, 6, we greatly rejoice even though for a while we're distressed by various testings. Same word. Many different colored. Is, is Peter saying in the first of the book, look, I know you got problems. I know you got difficulty. I know you got various, various colored trials and difficulties. I got news for you. By the time he gets to chapter 4, he says, there's something available to you that is also multicolored and multi-available. It's God's grace. They match one, four. One and four. Now, we got to go because you got to go. I, I, there, there's a whole issue here to say this, and, and I've got an answer. You might imagine. How do I experience this grace as power? My short answer is this. One is for us to open our lives to the reality that it's there. God has grace for you today. For power. For you, for me. The other thing we're going to talk about next week is a little more, is a little more specific about the means of grace. How does God go about this? How can we participate in this in a way that brings transformation? i got to pray. Lord Jesus, thank you. Help us. Uh, this may be a new idea to some of us. It, it may be an old idea we need to revisit. But I pray that you'll help us to live today with the reality that grace is not only for our pardon, but today through that optimism of grace, you have grace for power for us today. Relieve of, of us our trying. Relieve us of our effort to thinking we can do this and open our lives to this grace that you have available. We pray it in the strong and mighty name of Jesus. Amen. We're going to finish someday. <laughs>